Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities. Today, guest host Linnell Edwards is with us. Linnell is the Associate Program Director and Poetry Faculty Member at Spalding University's Naslin Mann Graduate Program in Writing. Her latest book of poetry is This Great Green Valley, a chapbook of documentary poetry based on revisionist narratives of Kentucky's pioneer founding in the 18th century. Three additional full-length poetry collections, Covet, The High Woman's Wife, and The Farmer's Daughter, were published by Red Hen Press. A chapbook from Accents Publishing, Kings of the Rock and Roll Hot Shop, chronicles the work and art of the, a glass-blowing studio. Her short fiction, book reviews, and essays have appeared in Another Chicago Magazine, New Madrid, Connecticut Review, among others. On today's podcast, Linnell will be in conversation with poet Doug Manuel. I'm Linnell Edwards, and today I'm talking with Doug Manuel. Doug was born in Anderson, Indiana, and now resides in Whittier, California. He is the author of two collections of poetry, Testify from 2017 and Trouble Funk, which is brand new in 2023. His poems and essays can be found in numerous literary journals, magazines, and websites. And he is assistant professor of English at Whittier College and teaches in the low residency MFA program at Spalding University, Sina Jeter Naslin, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. And we are going to be talking about his very, very brand new book of poetry, Trouble Funk, his second collection. Welcome to the Think Humanities podcast, Doug. It is fantastic to be talking to you during National Poetry Month about Trouble Funk. Um, how are you doing? Thank you so much, Linnell. I'm so happy to be here. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Excellent. This is simply a wonderful book. Its structure, its story, its multi-layered histories. It's broadly the stories of dreams and desires of the two main characters, Denise and Damon, uh, as we learn your parents. Their difficult but passionate courtship and marriage and compellingly set to a soundtrack of R&B and funk music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The Ohio Players, Parliament, The Dramatics, The Temptations, Donna Summer, and many, many others, and which also constitute the titles of each poem. And please tell me you have an actual playlist of these songs that you can send to me. <laughs> yeah, I totally, totally do, my dear friend. I totally, totally do. <laughs> outstanding, outstanding. Could you, We're hoping that you could read the opening poem for us, Let's Get Small, 1986, uh, a song recorded by the Dramatics, I think, in 1974, and maybe talk a little bit about how and why this poem opens the book and about the synergy between the song title, the date, the subject, framing of the book, because it is, it's a, a very compelling and interesting approach to organizing a collection. Um, so yeah, no, Let's Get Smalls is really where the whole collection starts. Um, my dad, the first band that he told me about when I was talking to him about like this time and what music he liked to spin, the first band he said was Trouble Funk, hence the name of <laughs> this uh, text. 
And yeah, no. And so Let's Get Smalls is a song by Trouble Funk. Um, Trouble Funk's a DC go-go band. And so go-go's this really, really interesting uh, music that I really wish would have blew up a lot more. Um, in the late 70s and early 80s, go-go was kind of uh, like funk and like almost like a precursor to hip hop, live inter mm. instrumentation. And it was mostly in the DC area. So my dad had a lot of cap uh, cultural capital for playing that kind of stuff in Anderson, right? Because he could be like, oh, don't nobody know anything about this. Don't nobody know anything about this, which really, really uh, helped um, him, you know, be successful as a DJ. But before that, I, yeah, no, I, I love um, your introduction of how you framed the text. Um, so the way that it goes is when I was thinking about how to tell the story of my parents falling in love, you know, um, I thought the best way to do it would be through music. My dad was a DJ during these years. And so often everything that he talks about comes back to music. He's always soundtracking everything he's talking about. Um, and I think, you know, since my mom died when I was young, when I was eight, um, and since my dad and I have such a, as Toni Morrison would say, thick love relationship, we have to try at it. Uh, my dad went to prison when I was young, spent a, most of um, my life in prison. Um, so it makes things hard for us. But the older I get, the more and more I see um, how much I'm like him. And I also see how much that he's kind of a victim. Uh, one of my worries about testify is that I kind of felt like that I made him a villain so often. And like, cause he in some ways does kind of act at least as an antagonist in my story, in my coming of age. And so, yeah, I really wanted to try to find a way to love him harder and to love him deeper. And that's really what this text has been about. And all my work is always looking for my mother, but with this text, I'm particularly looking for my father as well. So um, each poem is, like you said, is titled after a song. And the year after the um, song actually isn't um, the year the song was made. It's where the narrative action is. So, you know, I'm an 80s baby. So I pop up sometime <laughs> in 83, actually. Um, and yeah. And I think the other thing that I'll say is that I use not my parents' real names because so much of this I had to invent. Like my parents are Debbie and Dougie, so Damon and Denise like totally makes sense, right? But um, I felt a certain kind of way with my mother not being here to confirm some of the stories and so much of it is family hearsay. And then so much of it also is that I would have to invent it with you know the poetic mind and the poetic eye. And so one of the big things that I say a lot about this text is that I'm trying to tell a truth and not the truth and trying to land somewhere with that. So I think um, that's enough uh, preamble. I have a lot of poetry paddle usually, but with this text, I'm trying to like just do it up front and then just get into the poems more and let the narrative carry today. So I'll, I'll be quiet now and give you guys a little bit of Let's Get Small. Let's Get Small, 1986. Same scream since the night before. She locks herself in the bathroom. He holds up the bathroom door with his back. Today's her birthday. Another job gone. The song of another woman all over his lips caught. She could taste it. She screams, he screams, they scream. They scream, he screams, she screams. She screams, he screams, their scream. The same scream they began with, the same scream they'll end with. But really it's older than that and deeper than that. And oh, so very black. 
the same scream since the Middle Passage, since slavery, since Reconstruction, since Jim Crow, since the Great Migration, since redlining, since civil rights. So many screams slicing love. Music, the stitches. Forgiveness inside a drum. He walks to the record player, puts on their song. The times for four hard on the downbeats staccato. Something to dance to. Something to survive through. Something to die to. The bathroom door sighs open. A mouth full of silence. So many things to talk about with that song. And, you know, as the opening poem, we know how much weight it has to carry, how much work it has to do as a poem. Um, and so many, so many themes set in place too. That that idea in the line almost towards the end, music, the stitches, forgiveness inside a drum. Yeah. Um, you said a little bit about writing about your parents, which I did want to ask you about, but I'm gonna go ahead and jump to a question that I think. Think this um, poem also evokes, which has to do with growing up with this music and how you think it shaped your own music in your poetry, which you and I would think of as your approach to your poetic form, the music of your poem, the, the, the sounds, the, the rhythms, etc. Hearing all that, how do you think it impacted the way you construct poems? I think for me, being raised with just funk and good soul music behind all the time. And then also you gotta remember I'm of the hip hop generation. I'm like the first generation that I've had hip hop my whole life. Like I've never known a time when there wasn't, you know, hip hop. Um, and so I think that gives me more of a kind of a jagged, almost uh, off kilt kind of lineation strategies. I'm usually, you know, working with heavy enjambments. I, yeah. I usually, you know, I like Cezures near the end of the line so I can like propel into the next line. And so I think it kind of, you know, in the black community, we have this phrase called like, get it on the good foot, you know, always paying attention to the off beats. So, you know, um, I, I, I want to be in the swing of things. I want um, not just be on the down beats, but like, again, being able to play those kind of gray notes and get into that kind of pocket rhythmically. And I think it also leads to me working with the shorter line a lot more. Um, I usually don't feel that comfortable in, in a long line. Usually my music kind of gets muffled with that, with the velocity of that. Usually I try to build momentum with a shorter line that I can kind of jump down the page. But I think also it, it informs my whole vocabulary. I think that, you know, um, everybody's always negotiating different registers of diction. But I think because of the community that I'm from, what my dad listened to, my dad's worldviews, um, and just, you know, the Midwest swang, like I think that that's really, really comes through that, uh, at sometimes, you know, I can be talking about, you know, epistemological processes and then the next time B is crass is saying, you know, a man ain't good for nothing except for his dick and his dollars, you know, like yeah. the, that that's all in um, all, that could all happen in a Doug poem in one second. And I think that definitely happened because this music and this world was always around me as well, too. 
Yeah, yeah, I I definitely see that. I mean, knowing testify, I can I can feel that and 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 hear it. And certainly in this book, um, you know, I was joking earlier before we started recording about um, going ahead and turning up the music and just singing along with it, just because you know why would you not want to sing along to she works hard for the money, and so, <laughs> um, you know, the, the the music sits in there comfortably and the poems sit in there comfortably. I I think. Um, let's talk a little bit more just about kind of the narrative here. Um, it opens broadly, I would say, kind of in medias race. 1986 is sort of the towards the end of what the documented chronology in this text is. Um, and it's documented their struggles and triumphs, their love and his infidelities, her struggle to keep a steady income, maintain a household. At some point, there's a child in there, but as you said, you're not in this book. Um, and for both of them, a constant battle to be seen, to stay alive as a Black person in the late 20th century. In the song Mothership Connection, 1975, which is titled after the track by Parliament, the narrator describes the summer of 1975 for them as, quote, a Midwest song, a story of factories and dance halls. So Anderson, Indiana, your birthplace and, and childhood home is prominent as a place in this collection. Can you say more about this as a Midwest book, a Midwest song? You know, there's so many with, I'm definitely a poet of place. And there's so many things about Anderson that inform who I am and inform my poetics that I, it's almost dizzying when I think about it. Um, one of the things that happens in Testify is that the speaker, myself, usually, or at least a, uh, a kind of closely thinned uh, uh, guise of myself, um, is so ready to leave Anderson and thinks it's this small town with nothing to offer that like has nothing and think that the people in Anderson are, you know, just these kind of slow backwards people. And like, you know, in many ways testifies about like a speaker who escapes Anderson, right? And when I start thinking about it, I'm like, I took Anderson everywhere I've gone. And I take Anderson everywhere with me. You know, uh, my godfather once told me when I was, you know, uh, moving across the country as I have a whole bunch of times, he's like, but Dougie, you have to take you everywhere you go. And that never really hit me that hard until I got older. And so, yeah, no, if, you know, if General Motors doesn't come, if the Ford factories don't come, if Delco Remy doesn't come, Anderson doesn't have this like burgeoning black bourgeoisie that my mom got to be a part of by working at Delco, uh, actually Guy Lamp for those years. And so she, uh, right out of high school, was able to get like this super, super well-paid, solid, solid job. And that really created this awesome middle class. And so there's like this almost hope for a second that like things are going to be like really, really awesome for them, you know? And I think that's one of the kind of sad things about my life when I start thinking about like what ends up happening to my father and kind of his demise is that his demise echoes the Midwest demise. Like once the factories go and crack comes in um, because of NAFTA and such, and then the rise of, of the crack epidemic, Anderson, like many towns in the Midwest, we can think of Flint, we can think of Detroit, we can think of uh, Kokomo, we can think of Saginaw, on and on and on and on that it was like factories left, drugs came in. And I think we're seeing a similar thing, you know, in the Northeast right now uh, with the opioid crisis, right? That, you know, a lot of those, you know, I was just in Boston and they talk about like the textile industry and how like a lot of those jobs went 
as soon as opi as the opioids came in, you know, uh, with the pills and with heroin and such. And so I think that's one of the ways. And then I think also Anderson's one of those towns that at the time was almost big enough to be like a real city. Like we had like the fourth largest high school gym in the country, which is so weird for a town of like, you know, 37,000 people now. I think at the time uh, when I was growing up, we were like 57 and at maybe the height in the seventies when my parents uh, were thriving and all the factories were doing well, I think we got up to 70,000. So like to think about that, that this little town cared about basketball and had all this commerce through like, at one point there was Delco Remy, Guy Lamp, GM and Ford all in that little town. Like it's just bonkers to me. So I think that that informs all of that. And again, um, trying to think of not my parents has just villains or victims, but really like what made them them. I had to inform Anderson and all the ways that the black community um, is so segregated there in its own little thing on the west side of Anderson. Um, like it's crazy the avenue. Uh, where they all hung out, where all these different clubs and people were bootlegging liquor, like this mini scene, like you, it sounds like it's the 20s, you know, like I, I'm a black modernist, I, I studied the Harlem Renaissance, and so much about like things that were happening in the late 70s and 80s there as far as like, you know, the DJ scene and the clubs and everything and the card games, I'm like, this sounds like it's coming out of Harlem in 1921, because they were mm -hmm. so segregated and had their own autonomous community. So I think that also informs it as well, too. Like, you know, in Anderson at that time, you can go days if you wanted to, if you didn't go to school without talking to white folks. And that's like kind of wild to me. Like, that's how segregated Anderson is. And it's palpable there. And, and that also worked on my parents. You know, my dad's love for music, factories, that all works on my parents. And I think, again, when I think about why does my dad fall victim to the crack epidemic, and when I think about some of the choices he made, him being born in Anderson definitely colors all of that. Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating to consider the ways that all kinds of histories run through a place. And, you know, this book is documenting, I think, in in, in incredible ways, a particular one. And, you know, as you said, things happening again, There, there's a kind of deja vu all over again sense in some of this. I'm thinking about a poem like, I ain't going to stand for it anymore. I have in my in my notes here, wait a minute, this is happening right now. People are losing their food stamps and people are skipping dialysis and rationing their meds. And wait, this is 1981. And I'm thinking back, oh yeah, I remember what happened in the 80s. So, you know, it's a it's a it's a book that's just really informed by and, you know, history, um, I think, in, in important ways. And, and to hear you speak about that. And this is what we make our poetry out of. Um, let's go ahead and take a brief pause. We're going to hear from our underwriter, the Spalding University, Sina Jeter Naslin, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. And we'll be back with another poem. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing offers one-on-one -on -one faculty attention in a supportive literary community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies or travel on short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalling.edu slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalling.edu. All right. 
I am back talking with Doug Manuel for the Think Humanities podcast about his brand new collection of poetry from Red Hand Press, Trouble Funk. So could you set up and read another poem for us? Awesome. I totally can. Um, so yeah, the next one I'm going to read is Toast to the Fool. Uh, this is a dramatic song. I uh, love the dramatics. Uh, the narrative action of this is going to be 1983, the year I was born. Oh, my goodness. It's so crazy. Uh, so crazy. Um, I think another thing that I'll say that was really important for me um, with this text is moving to the third person. Um, Testify is so locked in the lyric I um, that I wasn't able to look up and add a lot of the history. So it kind of, again, felt more like a coming of age story. And I wanted to have the political context. Um, before we broke, you talked about how much um, the late 70s and early 80s rhymes with our current moment. And that was one of the saddest things and also the most kind of fecund things for my process of realizing that. I'm like, oh, I know this because that's happening right now with me. These are things that I'm thinking about. And so it really helped me be able to document the changing same. And that's a term that we've been, uh, a lot of you know folks have been throwing around lately about how that it feels as though that, you know, the, the things that we're battling and the wounds of our country, um, we never, ever really let them heal all the way. So they always just kind of resurface in different ways. And the 80s really, really um, anticipate and kind of portend exactly what's going to be happening. I often say to people, and I just said when I was in Boston yesterday, that it's a very slow stroll from Reagan to the 45th. And that's hard for people to think about sometimes, but it's not if you're from communities like uh, my parents and like myself and Anderson and think about what some of those policies uh, enacted and what they made happen to that community. And so I think, you know, with Toast to the Fool, you can see a couple mild, madly in love throughout all that. And I think what's crazy is love's hard enough, right? So here's Toast to the Fool, 1983, the songs by the dramatics. They kissed as if each other's mouth was the cure for a disease they both carried for so long they forgot they had it. A disease no doctors could spot, a sickness that was beyond the eyes of their cousins, aunties, uncles, their grandmas, their grandpas, their mamas there. They both didn't have no daddies. They kissed as if the kiss was the last thing they would do with their lives, as if the horns of the inn were loud in their ears, the ground was shifting below them, about to take them forever under. They both could always see the end of things, the lastness of last always on. A dead daddy is a long, long song. They kissed as if they were free, as if the color of their skin didn't scar a target around their bodies, as if the law couldn't make them crawl, the police with their guns drawn, their bodies were sacred and safe instead of scarce and sacrilegious. They kissed, they kissed, they kissed, as if music saves, as if love saves, because it does. Let's hope it does, it does, it does. It doesn't. Throughout the book, I've been rooting for Damon and Denise so hard. And even though I know you a little bit and I sort of know, you know, what's coming. And of course, the opening poem, you know, is um, 
they scream, he screams, she screams, and um, but I'm still rooting for him so hard. And this poem is hard. It's like, ah. And um, this opens the second section of the book. So I had a couple things just uh, wondering about. I am wondering how you find the song for the poem. Because again, there's not a chronological match, although sometimes there kind of is. Um, mm -hmm. So how Toast to the Fool with this song, um, and also why does this one open the second section? I think sometimes uh, listeners might be curious about why do poems put, why are poetry books in sections? Well, first off, um, for two sections, I immediately thought of the record of side A and side B of flipping it. Ah. So that was one of my big things. And I think Toast to the Fool to start this uh, section, um, I wanted, one of the things that I was afraid of with this text, because this happened with Testify, is that there was so much darkness, so much darkness that I didn't know if people like could really feel any of the kind of light that, you know, I did make it. And I am a person who's, you know, like everybody, trying to survive and thrive that I just wasn't beaten down by um, all that I've been through. And so similar here, I wanted to show how deep really their love was because oftentimes I forget that they were madly in love. And I often ask my father, I'm like, I don't even like, you know, I question, especially when I'd be mad at him, I'd be like, why? I don't even know why mom gave you the time of day, bro. Like, and like would literally be thinking that so often. And so a lot of this text was me trying to figure that out. And what I realized, you know, from seeing old pictures of them and seeing their kind of vibe together is like, their love was so like intense, like just like super, super intense. And like, they had this intensity with the way they looked at each other. And I think that in a lot of ways, my mother may, and this is a projection and there's so many projections in this uh, text. And that's something that I feel very weary about and a little weird about, but again, kind of just trusting the pen and trusting the writing process, this theme came out again and again of just thinking that, you know, she was playing herself. And so, you know, toast to the fool, toast to the fool. And so, so often with these um, songs, I would just be talking to my dad and he would be like, and you know, that remind me of, you know, I put on toast the fool and then we would do this. And like, you know, it was just music was always all around them. So with some of the poems, you know, there's a, a direct relation, like, you know, again, like I'm thinking of uh, my mother and Denise of again, like, here you go again, falling for his bull, you know, uh, with this one. But with some of the titles, you know, um, it's a lot of disjunction. Like it'd be like a super, super funky uh, beat song, but it'd be like the saddest slow moment. So with each one of them, I'm trying to do something a little different. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes when I teach, I talk about um, how titles can be a hack kind of like to match your outfit or you can kind of clash with your outfit. And so sure. I'm trying to work with uh, negotiating those kind of two extremes, those two uh, binaries of a hat that kind of matches the outfit and kind of teach, uh, sets uh, the stage like this one does. Like this would be a, a nice coordinated outfit or, you know, versus something like let's get small that is, you know, like that like crazy, crazy baseline. Like that would be like if you wore like a pink fedora with, uh, with a yellow jumpsuit, you know, like everybody'd be like, oh, Lord help, what you got on? But everybody would pay attention. And so that's uh, kind of what I'm getting at with this. And why to start the uh, second section? I end the first section also with uh, kind of notions uh, of them loving each other with uh, mm. anticipation. And so I wanted to have that kind of echo the way like when you turn a record, how usually the songs like in, in, would be bleeding into each other from the other side. So I wanted that kind of um, 
bleeding in as if like that it was like one song kind of going through with that, even though we're jumping through time mm -hmm. like that. And so that was the other thing that was really hard with sequencing this text is because there's so many um, layered narratives that I'm trying to build at once. So really um, what I try to do is imagine each uh, section being a side of a record and building a kind of narrative arc that lands somewhere on each side of those records, but then also having each rec uh, each side of the record be one album. It feels that way. I, I think you did a fantastic job with that. I can sense that kind of organic architecture happening um, with the start sort of kind of in the middle of things, but mostly towards the end. And then there's sort of a flashback kind of um, uh, approach where we get a glimpse of Denise at the roller rink. Um, Damon, the fat, the fat kid, ah, my heart breaks, you know, and you see, oh, I see why he is now, what he is in, in some ways. Um, you talked about, you see, you're saying projection, so much projection here. And I'm wondering a little bit about um, you recreating scenes long before you were born of your parents' youth, uh, childhood and, and young adulthood, their courtship. And I'm wondering about, um, was there other kind of research that you did just to get a sense of the historical context and even particular languages or kind of what you might even think of as a throwaway reference to some brand or some thing they might have used? Did you do other kinds of research as well as probably, I don't know, family and projection, of course? <laughs> uh, all family conversation. One of the awesome things, and going back to Anderson, um, ah. when, I, when I go back to Anderson, it's... Um, it's a lot for me. Um, it's a whole lot for me. I don't go back as often as I should. Um, when I do, I don't probably stay as long as I should. Um, there's a lot of dangerous things for my psyche in Anderson, so it's hard for me. But I went back to Anderson a lot to talk to family and everything. And when I go back to Anderson, so much of it is talking with ghosts. Um, my mom, my grandma, my great aunt, almost all the important uh, maternal figures in my life are past there and um, seeing the kind of conditions that a lot of my people live in and knowing what I'm doing and what I'm not doing to help them with that is a lot for me with Fanderson. But at the same time, it was so fulfilling because I needed those stories to be able to not only write this book, but to figure out my dynamics with my dad and my mom and to know something about her. Um, so a lot of it, you know, was talking to dad, many, many phone conversations of me recording like him and I talking. And, you know, my dad is, there's a reason why I write, you know, remember I said that so often we realize the older we get of how much we're like our parents. Like my dad is just this awesome storyteller. You don't even have to talk when you talk to uh, my dad on the phone. You, uh, oftentimes I just set the phone down and have it on speaker and my dad just gives her reins. He just wants a willing audience and he'll just tell you so many things, so many things and so many histories. And so that would be happening. And then also um, with my auntie, you know, I wanted to be able to like ask her a lot of things too. the woman who raised me after my mom died and my dad's, you know, um, addicted to crack. And she, you know, she gave me stories. But the kind of treasure trove Linnell actually was is that my auntie sent me all these pictures from that time. Yeah the family photo album. So a lot of these are based off an image from a photo and then me build from there, coupled with the, the stories that my family has told me. And so that's really when things, when I got that uh, 
when I got that photo book, everything went start sprinting as far as the narrative. I was like, oh, now we can really do this. Because then I'd get to see those landmarks and I'd be like, where was the pool hat again? Where was Lee's at? Oh, that's where the Elmo Rocco used to be at. Oh, so where was that in relation to the avenue? And then my dad would instantly have a story. He'd be like, man, I remember that's uh, where uh, Johnny Lee and then put a gun on the back of my head. And I'd be like, oh, oh there goes a poem. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that's funny. And that must have been rewarding and just all the feels actually to uh, to to do that, <laughs> you know. Um, so I'm going to ask you to to read one more poem, um, although I'm really tempted to ask you to read the last poem because it's sort of a marvel um, as well as um, the one we had talked about earlier. So maybe maybe you're maybe well, this is our two poem warning and um, you could sort of set them up. But I, I have to say that. Um, the way the book ends, I just, yeah. Well, no, um, I'm glad because I was having so much trouble choosing a last poem when you and I had talked about this, because I really feel like the one that I'm going to read, uh, that I chose, really kind of leaves off on uh, Damon slash my dad's experience, while like we don't get that much shine on uh, my mom's experience. And that was the other balance that I had trouble maintaining in this text. Sure. And so if we end with that last poem, it gets that. So that's awesome. I'll read both of those and I'll... Um, yeah, I won't give too much uh, prattle and kind of let the narrative uh, carry the day so we can get into this. And yeah, thank you so much again for this, Linnell. This has been beautiful. And your questions have been so brilliant, like they always are. You're such a great writer and thinker. Seriously, thank you, Linnell. Got to Love Somebody, 1987. A pistol, a razor blade, a crack pipe a photo of a woman who loves him more than he loves liquor and all his other girls. A lighter, a pint of Thunderbird, a 38 slug, a speaker to lay his head down by. The bass makes his face shake. A cigarette, a prayer. I hope he's better than me. All I want is for him to be skinny and better than me real skinny. A crack pipe, a rock, a lighter, a photo, a prayer. Help me be better than I am. Help me be a man. Make her come back. Make her come back. A window, a block, a town. The factories call his name. Crack calls his name. His eyes are flames a spark, a rock, a high that reached out and hugged him as his mama used to, as Denise used to. Damon, a man, his record player, his song, and not a single soul wants to listen. I guess before that, I read the last poem because it hits me every time that I read Gotta Love Somebody. Is that like, I used to be so mad at my dad. And oftentimes now I think about how just many failed dreams he has and how much it hurts to lose one's dreams. And yeah, that's something that really resonated with me, especially when I think about this, just dreams unfulfilled, you know, shout out to Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred, right? All right, here we go. Last one. Time rule reveal, 1987. Nobody asked her what she wanted for her birthday. So she figured nobody would do anything for her. 
because nobody even said anything about her birthday. So she was so surprised when she opened the door and there he stood, cake tilted, facing towards her. Her favorite cousin, Lonnie, Auntie Jessie, her mama, and silly Teddy there too. Damon counted to three and they all broke out into song. I love that the book opens with a scream and ends in a song. It's just beautiful work, Doug. And you are just at the beginning of what I'm sure is going to be a really terrific couple of years touring around with this book. And I want to wish you the very best as you take this out to the world. Um, and uh, much success. We'll see each other soon at the residency at Spalding with our fabulous MFA students. And so to our listeners, thank you all for joining us here in National Poetry Month on the Think Humanities podcast. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.